0: We get to a point where we believe that we should only be trading with countries that have equivalent values to ours, meaning strong institutions, a liberal outlook, if we can put it. And essentially, we're saying similar levels of development. So in that sense, there's a risk, I would say, of creating a a gated community amongst
1: uh, advanced economies. The open rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalisation? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022 a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute.
2: Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today we will be discussing the normative side of trade, or, phrased differently, free trade agreements, values, and ESG, environmental, social, and governance criteria (ESG, for short), play an increasingly important role in bilateral and multilateral trade agreements. Take a look, for instance, at the EU's negotiations with Mercosur the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, or even recently multilateral discussions in the context of the WTO's MC-12. In the EU and the US, there is an increasing focus to develop a values-based trade agenda that takes into account not just ESG criteria, for instance, by linking sustainability targets to market access, but also human rights protection and climate conditionalities. As geopolitics continues to impact the global trade landscape, we also see a trend to deepen trade ties with countries that are like-minded or share a common geopolitical outlook. So how are the introduction of ESG criteria impacting global trade relations? And what, more broadly speaking, is the role that values play in shaping contemporary trade ties? To take a closer look at this, I'm joined by three fantastic thinkers in the field. First, from Brussels, I'm joined by Emily Rees. Emily is a senior fellow at the European Centre for International Political Economy, and she's Managing Director at Trade Strategies, a trade and regulatory advisory consultancy. Emily comes with a wealth of experience on the intersection of trade, sustainability, and agriculture, and she has deep knowledge of Europe's trade policies Towards South America. Then, from Washington, I'm joined by Marie Kasparek. Marie is the Executive Director of the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University. She is also non-resident Senior Fellow with the Global Business and Economics Program at the Atlantic Council, where she covers a range of topics, including transatlantic trade relations and US-China relations. And finally, I want to welcome back Fazuki Shastri. Fazuki is an Associate Fellow of the Asia-Pacific Program at Chatham House and was most recently Global Head of Public Affairs and Sustainability at Standard Chartered Bank. He is a well-known expert on Asian trade policies, India in particular, and a previous guest on the AIG Global Trade Series. So let's get right started. Emily, can I bring you in first? To what extent do we see ESG criteria being introduced at both the multilateral and the bilateral level. And how important would you say are values in shaping contemporary trade agreements?
0: Thank you, Rem. Um, First, if you'll allow me to deconstruct the ESG part from a Brussels perspective, it's honestly the first time that I hear the ESG acronym being used in the context of trade policy. When I think ESG, environmental, social and governance criteria, I'm thinking more of investor advocacy, of the set of standards that set a company's behaviour and are mostly used, again, as a tool for investors to screen where they're placing their money. In that sense, it's perhaps different when we look at ESG from a government lens. In Europe or in the European Union, we would tend to frame the environmental criteria as being part of the European Green Deal's policy as it affects trade policy, rather than being bannered, I would say, under ESG. When it comes to the values element, I think it's quite important to keep in mind that the concept of European values is actually pretty recent. It was actually first defined only in 2003. And the EU believes that its values constitute a hard core of defining features in which every union citizen can recognize himself irrespective of the political and cultural differences linked in national identity. And this is a rather human-centric definition of EU shared values. And those are the ones that are enshrined in the Lisbon Treaty. And so what do they include? They include the respect for human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, the rule of law, the respect for human rights, including the rights of persons belonging to minorities. What we don't find in this definition is what you would put in the E of ESG, the environmental elements. And I would go a bit further. The moral principles that we find that also bring together Europeans in a a different way. And when we're talking about such moral principles, we're looking at climate action, tackling dramatic biodiversity loss, regulating the digital space. So all the questions relating to the moral realm rather than fundamental values. And in making that differentiation, it allows us to tackle this question of ESG values in trade policy, I think, with a clearer definition
2: thank you very much for that and thanks for unpacking that with respect to sort of the eu dimension fazuki to what extent is this new focus on on esg as a framing concept for trade policy objectives something that's particular to europe or the united states and to what extent do you also see this in in countries in asia
3: yeah i mean Rem, i think there's a collective rolling of the eyes whenever the europeans land in delhi beijing or jakarta and talk about moral values, and talk about the imperativeness of inserting these value considerations into decisions on commerce, trade, and investment. You know, one one thing to note is the India-EU free trade agreement negotiations, which went on for 11 years, essentially collapsed because the human rights charter, which the EU wanted to introduce, would simply not fly in Delhi. Now, I think there's a different set of value considerations that emerging markets would bring to the table. I mean, so they don't want to see this as conditionality. And I think the fundamental problem is how this is framed, that this is essentially framed as an EU value being exported to these emerging and developing countries, embedded in free trade agreements, embedded in investment agreements, where they essentially have very little room to maneuver. And I think the Americans are, you know, in the context of what the Biden administration is attempting to do, for example, on supply chains, you know, bringing together, in inverted commas, like minded countries, the notion of friend shoring that uh, Janet Janet Yellen has spoken about. And, And, you know, the simple fact that the G7 seems to be, you know, on the way to introducing this climate club where it wants to bring together a group of developing countries, irrespective of its commitment to human rights, and uh, democratic values. I mean, normally all the countries are going to be democracies, but obviously many countries are in the breach of democratic values. So I think in the framing, I think emerging markets would accept that values are absolutely central to trade and the modern economy as long as they are differentiated levels embedded in these agreements. And there's a notion that this is a journey rather than a hard condition. And 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 then, I mean, we are recording
2: this conversation right after we've received news that um, there was white smoke uh, at the negotiations in the WTO in the context of MC12. What we heard and what we know is that there was uh, quite a bit of discussion about ESG and and values about biodiversity, about fisheries. To what extent? Do we see a a coming together of these different perspectives of, say, emerging economies and in Europe and the United States? Is there anything you or emily want to want to share on this? I mean, given the obvious caveat that we don't have the the negotiated text yet.
3: very quickly from me, I think there's a new pragmatism I see particularly in Asia, because I think they really are worried about globalization reversing. And the fact that, you know, Asia really has benefited from five decades of unfettered trade investment and globalization. So there is a concern that the US and the EU are perhaps stepping away from the table. So there is this anxiety to participate in both regional as well as more broadly multilateral free trade agreements. And and this pragmatism really, really, uh, you can see in New Delhi, which is now signing with great enthusiasm early harvest bilateral free trade agreements with, you know, Korea, Australia, and with the UK now under negotiation, uh, with the notion that the more contentious issues are going to be negotiated on the more extended time scale. And it is perhaps this pragmatism that India brought to Geneva, which enabled from what we can read an agreement on, for example, on fisheries.
2: And Emily, I know that you've been watching MC12 as well. How important do you think the discussions regarding environmental issues or fisheries were in the um in the negotiations
0: i mean evidently they were present but i'm not sure that for, in looking at the indian stance uh, we would necessarily qualify it as a pragmatic first there was a lot of interests at play and and obviously the russian invasion of ukraine and the subsequent consequences on trade of what's happened this year will certainly have played a a key role in in India being able to manoeuvre across many of these agreements, because it wasn't only the environmental elements, such as you mentioned, subsidies for IUU fishing. It was also about the waiver on intellectual property rights uh, for COVID vaccines. And if we look at uh, across the whole of the agreements that we were looking at in Geneva during the ministerial, India was always playing a key role and was able to to, to be present, I would say, across all of those topics. Now, one of the Elements. What happened in the run-up to uh, MC12 was very interesting in the sense that it created a platform, created a dynamic for different groups of countries to come forward with proposals that weren't necessarily multilateral at first, but that were plurilateral proposals on trade and environment, and and this as part of the trade and environmental sustainability structured discussions for instance but also we saw a number of co-sponsored papers on environmental talks on plastics for instance on fossil fuel subsidies also on environmental sustainability these didn't make the final deal but they will have created an impulse for the organization to start I would say really taking further action on those environmental dossiers particularly as we move to the next cycle of yeah. ministerial discussions.
2: Right, right. And it's, of course, uh, very good news that a multilateral organization, which has been so under pressure, the WTO, is able to deliver on at least some something of an agreement. Marie, I want to bring in you from the US uh, now, because l- leaving aside the specific question of ESG and trade, the broader issue of developing a values-based trade policy has gotten a lot of attention in the United States, particularly also, I think, in the context of the geopolitical competition with China and with Russia. And I was just wondering whether you could enlighten us a little bit about the state of the U.S. debate regarding the development of a values-based trade agenda, because it seems that it's not just about trade. It's also very much about foreign policy and about geopolitics.
4: Thanks, Ram. Yes, you're absolutely right. The conversation in the United States is increasingly moving towards a value-based trade policy where we define the U.S. values and the Western values as opposed to the other values. So I think with regards to values, trade policy, security policy, it is very much an us versus them, meaning the West against the rest in a lot of ways, most particularly us against China or us against Russia at the moment. So one of the interesting initiatives to look at right now that is taking effect on June 21st is the U.S. Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which is very particularly aimed at China, at human rights violations in the region. It was decided in December, and like I said, will take effect on June 21st. And all the businesses currently are scrambling what that means for them and their value chains and their businesses going forward. But it will bar imported goods, partly a wholly made in the Chinese manufacturing hub of Xinjiang, unless companies can provide the product have no ties to forced labor, not only the product, but in the entire supply chain. So um, that's a huge step. And I think we we will have to see how much impact that will actually also have on on U.S. businesses? So that is that is one of the very prominent current examples of how there is a huge shift with regards to a focus on human rights in U- U.S. trade policy.
2: Right, and it connects with that broader discussion about friendshoring rather mm-hmm. than and bringing in to. Clearer focus, the strategic dependencies that countries may have, particularly with regards to China. Fuzuki in in the Indian context, does that issue of friendshoring? H- how is that perceived?
3: I think it's perceived rather favorably because I think there's a difference here between government to government conditionality and private sector to private sector conditionality. Right. So if you've got an Apple, which which is making plans to relocate. Some of it's manufacturing from China into, into India, at least that's what we read. I think Apple will absolutely focus on ESG standards in its operations. And I don't think the Indian government will have any hesitation. The Indian government probably will amend some of its existing legislation to make sure that it complies, uh, that it's in compliance with what Apple requires. I think the difficulty here is if you try to embed this into treaty or into an FTA, if you've got this values-based chapter, it's going to be a much more difficult sell, even in a noisy democracy like India, because it's going to infringe upon uh, sovereignty. But I think there's actually a space here for European and American companies. They've got tremendous influence, I would argue, because every country needs foreign direct investment flows. And there's a competitive nature to the way countries like Vietnam, for example, is competing with India. And Vietnam slightly has an edge at this point in time. And so the financiers, as well as the companies building these investments, have an opportunity up front to require changes in legislation, absolutely require you know, changes in labor laws. And ultimately, you know since the manufacturing plant is going to be in operation on an ongoing basis, it is possible to independently verify whether compliance has been met or not. So I would say that instead of going the FDA route, uh, we really look at the huge flows of foreign direct investment from America and Europe into the developing world and use that really as a transmission mechanism. And even in India, it would be welcome. That,
2: that's interesting. And I want to I get back to you about this question of the role that the private sector plays in terms of, of pushing a number of these values or ESG criteria. First, I want to bring it back a little bit to the government-to-government FTAs, because I, I want to get this on the record. Like, Is this, this more this value-based approach to trade? Is that making the signing and the reaching of trade agreements more or less difficult? I'm looking at Emily. I know you, you've worked a lot on EU South America trade trade relations. It's an issue that at least comes to my mind quite quickly where we see that this is an obstacle. So how do you how do you see this? Is ESG may be considered important from a European perspective, but what what do we do if it actually makes it much more difficult to to sign these agreements in the first place?
0: It's a really um interesting point there, Rem. And I think that there are two Two points. You've got the government to government, which in of itself suggests that there is already a bilateral negotiation. And I don't think that that's what's happening anymore. Marie just pointed to, to the US initiatives in the area of, of labor and human rights. And it's very much the same. It's very much the same logic that is coming out of Brussels now. I would say in in if we were five to 10 years ago, yes, you would be Inserting some of those environmental and social elements into a free trade agreement that you would be negotiating bilaterally, you would be seeking to sit down with your negotiating partner to reach a common agreement. Now, when we look at the plethora of initiatives that are going through the Brussels decision-making pipeline, we're looking at unilateral measures We're looking at uh, measures of due diligence for labor, curtailing deforestation, even the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Effectively, as legitimate as they might be as initiatives, they are still unilateral measures in the sense they are not being negotiated either bilaterally or multilaterally. And so, in a way, it's too early now to see uh, what impact this is going to have Mm. in the relationship with third countries, as most of these initiatives once again are still undergoing scrutiny and will be judged on, on final content, once they are enforced and that they actually start impacting trade flows is when we're going to start seeing the first winners and losers and who can step up to the plate or not and also whether there are any discriminatory elements in the way that these legislations have been devised. If you'll allow me just to come back to the friend-shoring, though, for a moment. I've always had a bit of, um, it makes me slightly uncomfortable as a whole notion that we're we speaking of friend-shoring in the sense that it it's based on the principle that you're not going to fall out with your friends. And what we've seen recently from a European perspective has put some caution into that question, and particularly in the case of what is known as so this is the Australia-US-UK security agreement, you know, turned to the Indo-Pacific. But it resulted in Australia cancelling uh, a 90 billion Australian dollar contract for 12 French submarines. And it led to a sentiment of utter betrayal in Paris. We had uh, Defence Minister uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian calling it uh, a stab in the back. In the same time, in Brussels, the High Representative uh, Joseph Borrell wasn't even informed of the pact as he was announcing the Indo-Pacific strategy of the European Union. There is no way to to believe in that sense that these type of actions don't have consequences Mm. in what is considered friendships, I would say, in a very rapidly evolving geopolitical arena where we have strategic rivalries, where the place of each country has to be constantly adapted to the bigger world's strengths, I would say, out there. And so, you know, one of the risks that I see in this notion is that we get to a point where we believe that we should only be trading with countries that have equivalent values to ours, meaning strong institutions, a, a liberal outlook, if we can put it, as such. And essentially, we're saying similar levels of development. So in that in that sense, there's a risk, I would say, of creating a, a gated community amongst uh, advanced economies.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to to, to, to say f- uh, in favor of your point, Emily. Um We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on the normative side of trade, free trade agreements, values, and ESG.
1: As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade, and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade.
2: We're back from our break. I'm going to continue our conversation with Emily Rees, Marie Kasparek, and Fazuki Shastri about free trade agreements, values, and ESG. I don't know what French shoring is in French. I know that it's a term that's used a lot in, in U.S. policy circles. I think also with the experience of uh, the previous U.S. president, there are a number of questions to what extent friendship is, is endurable or to what extent it changes. That leads me to bring in Marie again. The U.S. and the EU both are pursuing these, these conditionalities or this more values-based approach, sometimes in response to societal pressure sometimes in response to foreign policy incentives, sometimes simply because they think that's the right thing to do, are they also cooperating amongst each other or are they working at side purposes?
4: That is a very good question. They are, of course, working together, but like Emily said, and as you have hinted at, I think the transatlantic relationship is still a little bit in a in phase of rebuilding. Under the Trump presidency, there have, of course, been a lot of initiatives that included the, the European Union that were not friendly. So I think this, this notion of friend-shoring might actually be kind of like an overcompensation from the US side in order to make up for a little bit of the absolutely not treating the European Union like a friend in the past four years during the Trump presidency, where Basically, the EU was treated as an enemy, a security um, threat, because the U.S. post tariffs on the European Union on the base of 232 tariffs, which are security tariffs or tariffs of national security.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So in that sense, obviously, there's a lot of making up to do. And I think that French shoring notion is, is a way of, of trying to do that. But of course, like Emily said, it actually just exacerbates kind of this East versus West dichotomy and this idea of, well, we are a club and you can't play with us, or at least I have a bestie and you're not it. So I think that is that is a fine line to walk. With regards to the initiatives that the EU and the US or notable initiatives that the US and the EU are working together on, one I would mention is an obvious one is the Trade and Technology Council that has recently gained a lot of traction where they work together, not just on trade, but on matters of security, on you know digital trade, on trade plus issues. I think there are 10 working groups, and it is a really positive sign to me to see that there is such movement and such eagerness to work together, not only on trade, but on a lot of other issues, as we've seen in the past. A pure focus on trade has not worked. So I think really collaborating on a number of issues is very positive. It obviously remains to be seen how much actual tangible progress and practical progress they will make. But Mm -hmm. even the departure of this rhetoric of animosity is a positive one. And obviously there have been unprecedented levels of collaboration with regards to the war in Ukraine supporting the Ukrainians with with weapons and so forth. And also, I mean, they've coordinated on economic sanctions, just going back to our debate of what we're talking about, uh, trade tools. They have employed, or they've agreed on a huge array on economic sanctions on Russia at an unprecedented speed. Usually the European Union is not one to move very fast on this, and they really have come full force with, together with the United States. So I think there's a area to watch for me economic sanctions and what the level that has been achieved towards Russia how that might translate in the future towards China because hopefully the conflict or the war in Ukraine will be resolved in the near future but once we turn back to China then as the other in terms of expressing our values and our concerns uh, I think we will. We'll have to see how we will work together on that, and if the level of economic sanctions will be similar to the mm. ones that we've employed towards Russia.
2: Yeah, it, it's very good that you mention also the um, the Ukraine war. Turning to Fazuki, the the issue of friendshoring and the Ukraine war are intersecting, and I can imagine there's quite a bit of pressure on India to follow the. US and European position over um, speaking out against the Ukraine war. At the same time, India has joined IPEF. There's the possibility that because of the friendship between the US and India in the context of the Quad, that that might then also lead to a number of the supply chains that are being reconsidered and rejigged in light of dependencies on either Russia or China could also end up in India. Again, is, is this something that's taken into consideration in Delhi? Does that argument about friendshoring play in Delhi at all? Or is it viewed as, again, this a Western attempt at, at norm promotion?
3: Yeah, I mean, the headline from Asia would be, many Asian governments love the concept of French shoring, because in the current Ukraine context, I know that this is all we talk about here in London or in D.C., But, you know, the Indians and the Indonesians and and other Asian policymakers look at Ukraine and Russia and say it's a European problem. It's a problem that Europe should have fixed many, many years ago, and everything that we are seeing now is, is a result of inaction. And indeed, what the Asians are saying is we need to prepare, actually, for the real battle for supremacy that involves China and the U.S., so many elements that the U.S. administration is previewing in Asia. This notion of friendshoring really is a way of decoupling supply chains away from China and try to establish this parallel track. I mean, this is all going to have negative impact on the global economy. I don't think we should kid ourselves that this is all going to be a smooth transition. But if if you're in Delhi. If you're looking at the fact that thousands of Chinese troops are massed on your border and you being asked by the Europeans to show solidarity on Ukraine, I think the deadly response has really been, yes, we'll show solidarity in terms of general statements. But we have a real problem on our border with China, and and that's going to be the next battle that we need to be prepared for. And all of everything that Emily and Marie spoke about, you know, they're absolutely right. But how do you construct French shoring as a concept? But it's really resonating mm-hmm. because uh, America was seen as being an absentee landlord for the last five years. It has come back in a way. I mean, and there have been more high level American visits in, into the region. And all of this is really in preparation for this economic dislocation, which is inevitable, where we build this parallel, for lack of a better word. U.S.-led economic order versus the Chinese one. And I think the Indians have clearly indicated through the Quad, through IPEF, through these early harvest trade agreements, that it is willing to be a little bit more flexible and not argumentative on the world stage on these these critical issues.
4: Yeah, I I just want to finish one thought and pick up on something that Vasuki said too, this, you know, we, we talked a lot about French rowing and we talked about a lot about Ukraine has kind of merged the US and the EU closer together in that sense. But I also think that specifically the Ukraine war has also deepened the divide between the West versus the East. I wouldn't say the West versus the rest, but definitely the uh, West versus the East. Those uh, between Western democracies who've rallied to isolate Russia and then the, the East or sometimes also the rest of the world who either or stays quiet and doesn't engage. It also has heightened the rivalry between US and China, specifically coming from the US perspective. And I think we are pushing towards very different models of trading governments there and Ukraine. The crisis in Ukraine just exacerbates and accelerates the the trends that we've seen in the past five to 10 years. And lastly, I did say that the transatlantic bond has been strengthened through Ukraine, of course, mentioning the TTC, But it obviously doesn't solve a lot of the issues that, or not all of the issues that have divided us for years. So I I also don't want us to say, oh, well, great, everything is solved now. And we're moving absolutely towards a positive trajectory and only a positive trajectory. I think there's still a lot to be figured out. But Mm -hmm. yeah, just just to close that out.
2: (laughs) And just for our listeners, we have a podcast dedicated to uh, unpacking the Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council, which you can find on our website where we also touch on some of these issues. Turning to China, does China have a value-based trade policy?
0: If it does, it certainly is not an individual-centric value policy, as you would find more in the US and the EU. Once again, when we're looking at that earlier definition of what constitutes fundamental values for Europe, we go back to all of these elements which are human-centric, right? So, human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, rule of law, respect for human rights, and the rights of persons belonging to minorities.
2: Right, it's good to, to hear that again. The, the reason I ask the question is if we are moving towards this phase where trade becomes more value-laden, where friendshoring is more an issue, that there's a question of imposing different types of conditionalities that are connected to norms, Then that might suggest that we are also moving towards a competition between values. And that then makes trade an element of a broader, almost normative, value driven, geopolitical struggle.
0: Might I push back on that, Srem? I'm not sure it's necessarily a struggle between values. It might be a struggle between a values driven trade policy and a market access trade policy. Just uh, We were talking about the TTC now and we've seen there are elements which are uh, linked to critical supply chains and others, but there's no liberalization agenda, there's no cutting tariffs, there's no market access, we're not talking about public procurement. And when we look at the role of China in other parts of the world, Latin America, Africa, amongst others, it's a very different stance. It's a trade stance. And Mm -hmm. often does not require an FTA, by the way. It's a pure market access. It's about trade. And so what's happening is that you're offering, I would say, to countries a a conundrum in the sense of having to decide between signing on to the list of, you know, Western values with all the due diligence requirements which are required, difficulties to get, you know, tariff-based liberalization, market access into any agreement with the West. And on the other hand, you have China that essentially proposes simply to trade with no, none of those diligent requirements. And that's really going to put all those middle countries, I would say, into a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure from both sides, especially as China has become a first trading partner with so many of these countries over the past decade.
2: That brings me to a point about what is the primary transmission mechanism for these values in the trade space. Is that governments twisting arms for geopolitical reasons, looking for friends between parentheses, trying to cajole supply chains to adjust along those lines? Or is it more bottom-up? Is it simply businesses responding to societal pressure or bringing their own moral compass when it comes to foreign direct investment?
3: One point I'd like to make, Ren, is I think China has learned a lot of painful lessons from unbridled lending in the first phase of BRI, where there was almost, I mean, there was conditionality of a completely different kind. ESG considerations obviously did not come to play. 50 to 55% of the original lending went into coal-fired power plants. I think China, from, from what you can read, is happening in Beijing. There's a fundamental rethink, and there's a recognition that BRI phase one was unsustainable, that future Chinese lending, and we'll see whether this is actually backed up by real announcements or not, there is going to be a focus on some level of environmental social considerations. We obviously have to see what this is going to be. So lessons, I think lessons have also been learned in Beijing, mm-hmm. that you just cannot do this g to g cash machine going into projects without without any scrutiny so I think that's an important point to emphasize before we before we have the broader discussion
2: so what you're saying is that there's we shouldn't make it too black white sort of binary that there's also a learning process in 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 China taking place Marie
4: no I I mean I I would even take it one step further but exactly what Basuki said I think China was so successful because it wasn't based on values. It was absolutely a, you know, a business transaction, so to say, without the conditionality, without the sticks. That is why a lot of the countries went to cho- join the Belt and Road Initiative and took investment from China versus taking investment from the European Union, the IMF, or the World Bank. Right. So I think it was exactly because it wasn't value-based that it was so, so, so successful. And I think, to Emily's point, I really think that it is a competition of standards. And not values. It will be, you know, for the EU and for the US, a lot of that goes hand in hand. We say we want to export our trade policy uh, through our, you know, foreign policy standards and values. But I, I think ultimately, um, with China, it's going to be a competition of standards. But before we move on, I think uh, to to talk more about the role of the private sector, I do think that even though there is a lot of movement on human rights and esg and so forth on the government to government level i i would almost say that the the focus on earth values has increased but the political and socio-cultural values have stagnated a little bit there's a lot of talk about human rights and some initiatives but we will still have to work out the enforceability of that and see how that actually plays out in practice so for now, I would say moving into your, your question on bottom-up versus top-down, there is a movement, a lot of movement from the bottom-up from the private sector that might have more impact, from my point of view, might have quicker impact and, and more impact in, in the near future. Even the European Union, and I, I would love to ask Emily about that, actually, you know, looking from the US towards the EU, I've heard obviously a lot about values-based trade in the past, normative power Europe. But then I hear something called strategic autonomy or strategic sovereignty, which really is for me a move backwards towards pragmatism and pragmatic trade and not really this normative power Europe that I'm used to hearing about.
2: I don't know if we have the time to unpack the whole issue of strategic autonomy um <laughs> but I do want to give give each of you a chance to add anything you want on on this question of the role of the private sector versus versus government policy in terms of infusing the trade landscape with a a more value-based uh say conscious I mean Fazuki you started off talking about this that It may be much more the role of the private sector rather than bilateral or plurilateral agreements that that move this forward. Does that mean that that's also where the future lies? If we want to, if we want to see these ESG criteria, human rights percolate further into the system, should we bank more on the private sector as opposed to governments?
3: No, I think there's a private sector and a public sector solution. Then, and the public sector solution, if you look at World Bank lending for the last five decades large multinational agency uh, lends into developing countries typically into complicated infrastructure projects which requires large resettlement of communities obviously you've got to make an environmental assessment i think the world bank and the regional development banks have done a very good job in sensitizing and educating governments that you simply can't go ahead and build a project unfortunately these lessons have been lost during the first phase of bri because of the sheer volume of money coming in without any conditionality. Hopefully, everyone is going to learn the lessons and rebuild now. And I think the private sector thing is fascinating because if you're an international bank or a manufacturing company, you're facing pressure from your investors. I would argue you're facing greater pressure from your investors than from regulators in really cleaning up your act in terms of lending into fossil fuels or lending into forestry. And I think the... Banks and the companies have realized you can actually change and shape behaviors on the ground, tied with the kind of financing, tied with the kind of investment that you bring to the table. Now, this is absolutely not going to be a hundred percent success rate in all countries. It all depends on the sectors that these companies are putting money into. It also depends to a great extent on you know whether whether or not they face pushback from local communities mm. and governments. Mm. Yeah. But I think it's a, it's, it's a focus area that we should absolutely talk about. I think we should document what best practice looks like. Right now, there's no clearing house to figure out which is the best private sector approach, yeah. uh, putting money into government manufacturing in Bangladesh, most spectacular example of failure in uh, social rules, which they're trying to fix. And how do we then transmit this to other parts of the developing world? I think there's a bit of a work to be done. The private sector has a role. I don't want to completely absolve the public sector, but I think we should look at these multiplicity of approaches in order to get to your original question on a values-based economic system, you know, looking beyond trade.
4: I think it's not an either or, right? It's an and, and, and. It is a private sector, government to government and multilateral. And I don't think that's mutually exclusive at all. It just moves at different speeds and we just have to make sure that all of the groups talk to each other at some point and really make sure, for example, you know, the private sector has responded, like Vasuki said, to consumers really wanting to push that normative-based agenda. Well, but ultimately we will need a universal framework for ESG investing. I think that's going to be the future. Well, that will take some time. In the meantime, we have the private sector hopefully applying a lot of the good practices that are demanded from from consumers. Some governments are starting to implement certain things, such as the new EU directive or the US ESG investment proposal. But ultimately, we will need multilateral approaches to finding that universal framework or WTO, OECD, and IMF working on a global solution to carbon pricing. So, I really think it is not, it's not an either or. It is all of those, all of the above. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. E- Emily, as you try to add things that you haven't heard so far, I also want to push you to think about this last question I have, which is Are there any results that we can already point to, to how this discussion about value based trade or human rights and ESG criteria have already had a uh, material effect on the ground?
0: Interestingly, in answering that question, you'll probably find that the impact on the ground has occurred more within the West than in third countries, even though the policies were directed towards the latter. So if we take questions of conditionalities, for instance, in international trade, obviously the objective here was to avoid another Rana Plaza. It was, yes, to ensure that we're curtailing any products uh, emanating from forced labor camps in China. But ultimately, it means that we need to reverse the mirror and we need to start looking at our own supply chains within. And what we Mm -hmm. found is that in the West, we're not immune to modern slavery, be it people trafficking or forced labour. We also have sometimes poor environmental standards, including deforestation. We are also seeing that we have a responsibility to not export our own products into the world when they have been produced with forced labour. And so actually what's happened is part of this conversation is a necessity Firstly, it came from a a question of wanting to, of compliance with WTO rules, but it ultimately, I think, is going to start a new conversation here in terms of impact in the West, looking at its own production methods and supply chains, because it's very difficult to request of your trading partner's value-based requirements, which are not effectively implemented at home, because otherwise you're taking a moral high ground, which will be rejected by trading partners, that will see it as, as a hypocrisy. And so, in that sense, I think this is where we're seeing a positive movement. When it comes to governance, it's it's also something that is puzzling, I would say, to the rest of the world. Yes, the movement to ensure that we have, for instance, that the investments of companies are are, are clean, I would say, from an ESG perspective actually what that's creating here is a whole new conversation. For instance, in the EU, we saw the inclusion of natural gas and nuclear as part of the sustainable taxonomy. And this, in a way, is forcing, I would say, the West to to look at itself when it requires of its trading partners certain standards.
2: That's a terrific point to end on. Because unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. So we've covered a very broad range of topics, all connected to this broader question of the future of trade being more value-based. We've talked about friendshoring, shoring, the impact of the Ukraine war. We've talked about environmental, social, and governance criteria in trade agreements, the role of the private sector versus government-to-government deals. Emily Reese, Marie Kasparek, Basuki Shastri, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me. I also know that this is a topic that uh, contains a lot more that we could have explored, and we'll be sure to do that in follow-up conversations. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please visit our website at www.aig.co.uk/gts.
1: G Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.